And we see that making room, especially when we move on to the last major module we'll discuss today, and that's the spirit module. And that is the extraordinary increase in clarity that the integral model has been able to bring to the very meaning of spirit or spirituality itself. And that is by using the aqua framework, we can actually look at the way that people already talk about the word spirit or spirituality, what they mean by it. And we find that there's, in a sense, a a meaning of spirit that is attached to virtually all of the five elements, at least five different meanings of spirit. And all of them are are true. It's just we have to indicate what aspect of of experience or existence where we mean to appoint to when we use the term spirit or spirituality. Because otherwise we just get hopelessly confused. And one of the examples is the quadrants, the first, second, and third person. And what integral theory points out is that spirit itself can be discussed in first, second, and third person terms. And that there are realities that correspond to these. So in third person, we find individuals who discuss spirit and see it, picture it, experience it as the sort of sum total of the manifest universe, kind of pantheism or panentheism. And they often use uh, systems theory to model it. And uh, Friedrich Capra comes to mind. Um, The notion of the great web of life is a classic third-person approach to spirit and seeing spirit as the structure of the entire cosmos tends to leave out, of course, emptiness or unmanifest dimension, and it leaves out first and second dimensions. And this is not obvious to people that use the great web of life because they think that in using systems theory, they're covering everything. But just like systems theory, systems theory really only covers the lower right quadrant, the exterior of objective systems. It doesn't cover interiors. It doesn't cover feelings, awareness, emotions, multiple intelligences, and so on. So it doesn't cover the interior quadrants. But people, you know, imagine that it does. But in any event, the reference to spirit as a great web of life in third-person terms is very common. And then moving over to the second-person view, it's as if you sort of imagine what if the intelligence that created this extraordinary great web of life that created the Grand Canyon and the Milky Way and all of the stars and planets that I see at night, what if I was actually face-to-face with that intelligence? What if I could actually talk to that intelligence in a personal fashion? where I could sit down chair to chair and look that intelligence right in the eye. And that would be seeing the spirit as a second person, as a great thou, as a great ultimate mysterious other. And, of course, that's a very, very common view, particularly in the theistic traditions. And they picture spirit in second-person terms. And their forms of meditation... Um, unlike third-person, cosmic meditation, where which is simply usually a, a quiet, silent cosmic contemplation, the types of meditation with second-person often involve conversations with God, quote-unquote, actually talking with or to spirit as a second-person. This is another very common uh, use of spirit. And then finally, in particularly in the mystical traditions, Spirit is viewed as first person, as the subject of awareness, and not merely any object. And so this is the awareness that's actually looking through your eyes and talking with your tongue and listening with your ears right now. And that is Brahman Atman. That's Buddha nature is one's supreme identity. And that is spirit in first person. And you can awaken to that spirit in first person through practices of meditation, which have as their goal the realization that you have a true self, and that true self is also the self of the entire cosmos. 
so automatically we see that, that you can talk about spirit in first and second and third person terms. We see also that there's been nothing but a constant warfare between traditions that emphasize primarily one or the other of those without integrally saying that all three of them are acceptable. And thirdly, we see that that's what we want to do. We want to be able to include all of those perspectives and have an all-quadrant approach to spirit. And this applies to our practices as well. But this is sometimes we refer to this as the one, two, three of God, meaning that there's first, second, and third person perspectives of God or spirit and that these need to be taken into account or else we get into another one of those either-or food fights that does nobody any good. Yeah, and we also call it the three faces of spirit, which is uh, right. my favorite uh, way to refer to it. And, right. And uh, the context for the conversation, of course, uh, you know, this is something we mentioned a little earlier uh, on a previous module, but it's especially relevant here, is that the mystery of existence, the ground of being, the matter of ultimate concern, is by its nature beyond perspectives. It is it transcends all perspectives, right. and yet we are uh, human beings, and human beings are perspective-making machines. Right. We just make perspectives, and we need perspectives. And therefore, uh, it's not just individuals who happen to be biased or focused in one or another of these three broad types of uh, spirituality, but whole traditions. And there really are many expressions of these different traditions. And there, for instance, uh, those who identify spirit with the great web of life, uh, the, the third person reality of, of that. But then there are many, I, I like to point out the aspects of third-person spirituality that are common to most of the people I meet and, and teach. Uh, almost everyone has some experience of nature mysticism. Right. And when we're walking in nature and looking at the, whether it's up close, you know, on the micro level, looking at the marvelous shapes of uh, individual organisms or whether it's on the macro level looking at the play of light in the sky or the right. night sky or the sky during the day of sunset, whatever, and, and, and the plays of energies and creatures. It's as if we're looking at the body of spirit, you know. That, that, right. There's that sense of contact and communion that uh, arises from looking at it. And we also feel a sense of awe and we are informed spiritually when we do exactly what we've been doing on this call, which is to consider the patterns that connect it. Right. Philosophy or theology are, uh, is an exercise in looking at it in terms of its deeper structures and the patterns that connect that reality, noticing that there are three faces to this right. uh, whole matter is is a way of looking at it in third person and we're enriched by this this is an important dimension of everyone's uh practice in both nature mysticism and philosophy right so uh uh i like those examples because they're entirely positive and right. they uh are within the experience of most of of the folks with whom i have this conversation and then i usually like to speak next about first-person spirituality, uh -huh. because I'm talking to educated Western people, and educated Western people are working with a creation story that is the Big Bang, and that's a creation story that really is about the inherent oneness of all things. It's not just the oneness of all matter and energy and that you know tiny point that gave birth through the Big Bang to the whole cosmos, right. but the very fabric of space-time itself. Yeah. Now, it's pretty much mind-boggling to imagine that this Big Bang didn't take place in time, but it was time and space self-creating and flinging all matter forth. That's right. pretty mind-boggling. Right. But the implications of even an attempt to comprehend it and to feel into it certainly are that there is no separation. 
<laughs> it's very hard to get away from it. Right. Or, 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 for instance, just, just, just the Einsteinian equation of E equals MC squared. You know, look around the room wherever we are or in a car, and whatever we're looking at is petrified light. Right. You know, every quantum of matter is the speed of light squared worth yeah. of energy. It's like... <laughs> Wow, that's like a lot of energy in every particle of matter, and this is all light, and there's only light, and it's all this petrified light and all these different forms and frequencies of the whole periodic table. I mean, the oneness of it all really stands forth from a completely materialistic, uh, empirical perspective. And right. That validates something about going into meditation and contacting a deeper subjectivity that is identical to a universal subjectivity. Right. It, it, it's not, it doesn't require any metaphysics to go there. You don't right. have to deconstruct any metaphysics. You don't have to encounter any metaphysics. You just go directly right. based on your best understanding of reality validated by the empirical scientists and the modern and postmodern perspectives. First-person spirituality is it, you know, not everyone has a deep experience of that oneness, but they certainly have a sympathy with mm -hmm. that type of inquiry. Mm -hmm. So, so I think we have a lot going for us in terms of third and first person spirituality. Second person spirituality is more challenging, right? And it's largely more challenging because most of us have recently enough been exposed to all kinds of mythic religion that prays to God and presumes a relationship to a God who, about whom the religion has very specific uh, uh, limiting uh, uh, formulations, form right. ideas, and, right. and, and that metaphysics uh, has been exploded. And we've felt all kinds of uh, oppressive influences of that kind of uh, view, anti-body, anti-sexual, right. uh, suppressive, uh, ethnocentric, on and on and on, yeah. associated with these mythic conceptions of God. And so the liberate, there's, a, there's a sense that second-person spirituality somewhere is going to slip in some kind of metaphysical horse pucky right. and delude us. Right. And so there's a kind of difficulty with it for all those reasons, but it's very important. It's, it's so important to have a second-person spirituality, for one thing, because we are social creatures. We evolved in hunter-gatherer bands. Our neurology, you know, the neurology of uh, tigers has all kinds of abilities to notice other tigers and what's right. going on with other tigers, but... They're solitary animals for the most part, except when the mothers are with their cubs. They're, they're not all built into connecting with other tigers. Humans are. We're, we're relationship junkies. We, all our neurology is we've got tons of ways to sense whether there's a sexual attraction, status differential, generosity, affection, all kinds of stuff about relating to others is right. just, you know, what we're made of. Right. And... And so most of our functions, we have lots of actual uh, faculties that are not fully engaged in third-person or first-person spirituality, right. which could be engaged in a second-person spirituality. Right. Right. So the potential for us to be transformed and to be engaged in our spiritual life that is offered by second-person spirituality is really significant. Plus, the fact is that most of us have an impoverished second-person spirituality to begin with. Right. So it's an opportunity for a great uh, deal of rapid development as that comes online. So there's a great deal uh, of uh, excitement in me about teaching second-person spirituality. It's been the focus of my work for the last year or so. And I think that the uh, way to engage it is to stand in that non-dual place. You know, we, we right. are educated Westerners. We, the, the Big Bang is our creation theory. We, we do understand that E equals MC squared. We're, we aren't interested in buying into some limited metaphysical idea of God. Right. So, so on what basis can we have an intimacy with spirit? How real is spirit? 
I don't want to be involved in some uh, let's pretend, right, right. pray to my imaginary other. What is that? Right. I, I want an authentic spirituality that helps me to be more real, more completely in touch with what really is, not, not involved in some delusional game. Right. So uh, the question that I feel is, is, has been most fruitful is to ask someone, well, if there really is only that non-separate reality, how do you account for the fact that most of the time you feel like a me who is distinct and separate from everything else in the cosmos? Right. If, if you, if it, to the degree there's any reality to your identity, to yourself, then there's a reality to the other, the, essentially the whole domain of the inner and outer cosmos that is not the self. Right has a reality too and it's not just a dead reality uh, uh, as if it only had exteriors no it has interiority too it doesn't have a dominant monad but it is a play of intelligence and it's out of that consideration that people can begin to contemplate the really profound path of of uh, a second person spirituality which is about a series of subtle shifts in the existential ground on the basis of which we live, right. in which our hearts go through a series of shifts, right. in which instead of living as an I with an it, where that otherness is defined by that wonderful one-liner from the Upanishads, wherever there is an other, fear arises, wherein our fundamental relationship to existence is one of, you know, do I need something from it? Can I get what I need? Is it going to hurt me? Fear. An I-it relationship of instrumentality. That can gradually be shifted as we begin to realize that we are in a reality that that is not an it. It isn't dead. It isn't soulless. It, It doesn't lack interiors. It has rich interiors, and there is a psychophysics in which the, the, there is a relationship between interiority and exteriority, mm-hmm. where some of the mechanisms, there's all kinds of, uh, it's quite, you know, the, this recent popular movie, The Secret, talks about how thoughts are things and can attract things and whatnot. It's a mixed bag of, of, of actual, you know, real dynamics that, that are worth knowing about and, and a fascination with them and then maybe a hallucination of some things that aren't even real. But uh, the fact that there is a psychophysical nature to reality and that there is a play between the psyche and the way things manifest is a, a, an authentic principle. Right. And, there, and, and if you're a real student of reality, you begin to wake up to aspects of that without necessarily making a fetish out of them. Right. You begin to wake into a relationship to reality that appreciates that interiority, that, that, that acknowledges it is present to a dimensional, a multidimensional reality that has soul qualities. And it might be thought of a little bit more like the goddess is a common term, you know, that, that we are in play with that. Right. It becomes something more like an I-she or I-her relationship uh, than an I-it relationship. There is right. a, a soul quality that we're, and, and, and it shifts the existential ground of the way we're living. We're not living in a dead world. We're living in a, a soulful existence. Right. And, 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 and in a sense, we're not alone. Right. Big shift. Right. And if that is deepened into, eventually there is the, and it's a spiritual courage that it takes, there is the awareness, oh my God, in some sense there is an intimacy possible here. There is a relationship possible here. And I'm averting my gaze. I'm living with this, in this psychophysical, soulful reality (laughs) and never making eye contact. You know, I'm, I'm hiding in some right. fundamental way. And that's another existential shift right. in which there actually is that courage to make contact. And, and there's, there's a kind of uh, profound humility that people go through. Almost uh, you have to pass through a veil of shame in which you realize, oh, my God, I've lived the whole drama as if I was alone and I wasn't alone. The things I thought I hid were never really hidden. And you're in the presence of the one who knows 
at all, who right. you've never been able to fool in even the slightest way. And, right. and there's a kind of getting getting straight with God kind of moment <laughs> that, that you go through in this in this next existential shift to the I-you relationship yeah. to spirit. Yeah. And that really is something like what Christians refer to when they talk about salvation. You are in contact now in an intimacy. You have contact with the beloved because if you make that eye contact you realize that you are forgiven that you are loved and and a, and a grace principle begins to appear in your experience at least to a, a little degree yeah and uh and of course then that can deepen and that's what we mostly associate with the devotional paths a, a really loving intimate relationship with existence itself shifts the ground entirely instead of averting your gaze and then making eye contact and then forgetting and averting your gaze for another month and making eye contact again, which is the beginning of that, <laughs> that, that I-you relationship, you begin to have more consistent contact. You're living in an intimacy. That's an I-thou relationship with existence right. itself. Right. And, of course, that can deepen and deepen and deepen. And, and the very, very high states that it can reach are ones in which that intimacy becomes a fire that burns away the distinction between I and thou. Right. And there really is a dissolution of, of perspectives. It becomes an I-I relationship, like right. a first-person spirituality almost. But, of course, it burns even past all perspectives. Right. And, 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 and as do second-person spirituality does this, but so does third person and first person in their right. ultimate expressions right and if one if anyone really pursues any of these three paths they ultimately break beyond perspectives in a way that if they do it in the highest way they realize the fruits of all three paths uh so that the ultimate realization of any path is is not distinguishable. There's a there's right. a breaking through that creates a kind of tenderness even in the first person practitioner and a, uh, an ecstatic oneness even in the third person practitioner. All, all the fruits of all three are available to the true transcendent practitioner of any one. But for most of us, the key point is to let one's whole living be informed by something of the sympathies that are awakened by a fundamental. Uh, friendliness and, 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 you know, that kind of willing uh, learner sort of studenthood that connects us to all three of these paths. Right. And, and it's going to, by itself, be a healing factor and, a, and, and an uplifting factor in, in your spiritual life in whatever path you're choosing to be right. lit up by these three opportunities. Yeah, um, all that's very well put, and it shows that the four quadrants of the big three, I thou, we, and it go all the way up and are part of the very first manifestation of the universe. And so allowing ourselves to come into relationship with I, 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 thou, and I, it is allowing ourselves that sort of ultimate you know, relationship with the ultimate realities of the manifest world itself. And of course, all of those resting upon suchness or emptiness uh, shunyata, Godhead itself, um, but in the manifest form, manifesting in these quadrants. And so this has helped us enormously to be able to track the unfolding of spirit in its three major perspectives and has all of the benefits that you've described uh, so beautifully. And, and it, it's so important to cover the bases on all three of these. And in the West, um, a lot of us intellectuals, you know, made friends with third person, loved first person, hated second person. And the reason is that in, to a large degree, and quite unfortunately, the official West's line of spiritual intelligence stopped at the mythic level. It just got frozen there for a whole lot of reasons. And so whenever we thought of spirit and second person, we thought of all those ridiculous anthropomorphic, you know, gray-bearded gentlemen in heaven on a throne and all of that. And we said, yeah, right, eight years old, uh, been there, seen that, bye. And overlooked the fact that spiritual intelligence is a line that grows all the way 
up in first, second, and third person, and that we can have second person going into modern, into postmodern, into integral and super integral levels of development, and that those are the levels that we want to connect with. And so that's actually part of practices that we include in, in integral life practice. So it's basically discovering and befriending this I, 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 we, I, it orientation that is spiritual. It's fundamentally spiritual and it's fundamentally a part of the fabric of the cosmos itself. And then there are uh, remaining ways that we can also think about spirit and that is an actual part of spirituality and spiritual reality is in terms of levels and lines and in terms of states. And in terms of levels and lines, there are a couple of ways. One is that the very highest levels in any of the lines are generally thought of as spiritual. So most of the lines, for example, go from you know through pre-personal levels into personal levels into transpersonal levels. And the transpersonal levels are thought of as spiritual, whereas the pre-personal and personal levels, generally not. So even emotional intelligence, we tend to think of the transpersonal levels of universal love and bliss and compassion as being spiritual. But the pre-personal narcissistic lines of rage and greed and envy, not so spiritual. And the same with any of the other multiple intelligences. So that's one way spirituality is used, and that's fine. Another way is that spirituality is its own multiple intelligence, its own developmental line. And this is um, as investigated by James Fowler, for example. And that's fine, too. That, that's a completely legitimate use, that certain aspects of spirituality have a developmental structural component. And then the last one, just touching on these briefly, and showing the um, kind of clarity that an aqual framework brings to the meaning of spirituality, is that many people use spirituality as a state of consciousness. And so it is generally states that are transpersonal, um, that are blissful, that are non-dual, that are witnessing. And it's very, very common, uh, meditative, contemplative states of consciousness. It was a very common way that spiritual and spirituality is used. And that's absolutely fine as well. Um, and so we keep all of these in mind when we think about spirit and spirituality. And again, so many arguments are meant where somebody has one meaning in mind and they're arguing something else. And it just, so much stuff clarifies if we think of the three faces of spirit and realize that all three of those are okay. You just have to indicate what you're talking about or are you talking about a level of development? Are you talking about a line of development? Are you talking about a state of development? All of those are real. All of those are present. And in the book, we select five meditation practices and give instructions and discuss those in a little bit more detail. And these, again, are just samples, but there are five that sort of touch on all of these areas. Um, the five are basic breath meditation, uh, and I'll just read from this. This is a way to build your concentration muscles while also enjoying the purity and clarity of a meditation practice. Two, the I am mantra meditation. The gold star practice makes use of the ancient principles behind TM and other mantra meditation practices in a thoroughly integral context suitable for anyone from beginners to advanced practitioners. Integral inquiry number three. This gold star practice continually releases attention into formless awareness because it offers several stages of practices appropriate for anyone. There's a one-minute module as well. Number four, the three faces of spirit, meditation with form. There are three gold star practices on the profound implication of integral consciousness. We contemplate spirit, commune with spirit, and awaken as spirit. The three phases of spirit can be enacted via a simple silent meditation, a several-part visualization, and a one-minute module. 
And finally, five, compassionate exchange. In this gold star practice, you visualize self-sacrificial service to the whole world via every breath, ultimately dissolving even the distinction between self and other in non-separation. There's also a one-minute module on this. Um, and I thought I would read the two pages on I Am Guided Meditation to give people a taste of that I Am awareness. Notice your present awareness. Notice the images and thoughts arising in your mind, the feelings and sensations arising in your body, the myriad objects arising around you in the room or environment. All of these are objects arising in your awareness. Now think about what was in your awareness five minutes ago. Most of the thoughts have changed, most of the bodily sensations have changed, and most of the environment may have changed. But something has not changed. Something in you is the same now as it was five minutes ago. What is present now that was present five minutes ago? The feeling awareness of being itself, your most basic I amness, is still present. You are that ever-present I amness. That I amness is present now, it was present a moment ago, it was present a minute ago, and it was present five minutes ago. What was present five hours ago? I amness. That sense of I amness is an ongoing, self-knowing, self-recognizing, self-validating I amness. It is present now, it was present five hours ago. All your thoughts have changed, all your bodily sensations have changed, your environment has also changed, at least slightly, but I am is ever-present, radiant, open, empty, clear, spacious, transparent, free. Objects have changed, but not this formless I amness. This obvious and present I amness is present now as it was present five hours ago. What was present five years ago? I amness. So many objects have come and gone. So many feelings have come and gone. So many thoughts have come and gone. So many dramas and terrors and loves and hates have come and stayed a while and gone. But one thing has not come and one thing has not gone. What is that? What is the only thing present in your awareness right now that you can remember was present five years ago? This timeless, ever-present feeling of I amness is present now as it was five years ago. What was present five centuries ago? All that is ever present is I amness. Every person feels this same I amness because it is not a body, it is not a thought, it is not an object, it is not the environment, it is not anything that can be seen, but rather is the ever present seer, the ongoing open and empty witness of all that is arising in any person, in any world, in any place, at any time, in all the worlds until the end of time, there is only and always this obvious and immediate I amness. What else could you possibly know? What else does anybody ever know? There is only and always this radiant, self-knowing, self-feeling, self-transcending I amness, whether present now, five minutes ago, five hours ago, five centuries ago, five millennia ago, before Abraham was, I am. Before the universe was, I am. This is your original face, the face you had before your parents were born, the face you had before the universe was born, the face you had for all eternity until you decided to play this round of hide and seek and get lost in the objects of your own creation. There is no need to pretend that you do not know or feel your own I amness. And with that, the game is undone. A million thoughts have come and gone. A million feelings have come and gone. A million objects have come and gone. But one thing has not come, and one thing has not gone. The great unborn, the great undying, which never enters or leaves the stream of time, a pure presence above time, floating in eternity. You are this great, obvious, self-knowing, self-validating, self-liberating I amness. Before Abraham was... I am. I am is none other than spirit in first person, the ultimate, the sublime, the radiant, all-creating self of the entire cosmos, present in you and me and us and him and her and them and all. 
as the I amness that each and every one of us feels. Because in all the known universes, the overall number of I ams is but one. Rest is I amness always. The exact I amness you feel right now, just as it is, which is unborn spirit itself shining in and as you. Assume your personal identity as well, as this or that object or this or that self or this or that thing resting always in the ground of it all as this great and completely obvious I amness and get up and go on about your day in the universe I am created. And that is a meditation on I amness. First person spirituality. Yes, first person spirituality. I love it. <laughs> and I thought I'd read uh, just briefly two paragraphs on integral inquiry, since that was mentioned. Uh, this meditation works on two sides, absolute and relative. On the absolute side, it invites you to relax your identification with passing thoughts and experiences and to rest in formless awareness moment to moment. This is not a blank, mindless state, but your natural condition when you are free from self-contraction in relation to what is arising. Many approaches to meditation involve holding attention on an object. It could be the breath, body sensations, an image, or a mantra. Formless meditation involves releasing attention from all objects in order to rest effortlessly in pure awareness, a, quote, non-practice practice that is sometimes called just sitting or pure presence. On the relative side, integral inquiry invites you to dissolve the conditions that habitually distract you from pure presence by facing and understanding them. Often these are personal shadow issues. Thus, integral inquiry incorporates the 3 one shadow process. In addition, you can use other practices from your ILP toolkit. For example, the three-body workout, three phases of spirit, and the aqua framework in order to dissolve obstructions to your experience of the absolute. And what I want to say about those examples is that they're just ongoing examples of what happens, the types of meditation practice that you're in move to engage when you have a framework like Aquil that is complete, that is generally holistic, that is generally all-inclusive. The types of practices that we take up tend to be all-inclusive as well. And so we're covering all of the different dimensions and aspects and meanings of spirit and not getting stuck on just one or two of them. It's interesting. This has such important implications in both of the domains that might be taken as a measure of one's practice. One of the ways we might measure practice is by the realization, by the samadhi, by the awakening that yeah. results. And this speaks directly to that, because it's uh, very specifically mapping some of the uh, realizations that come from the paths of the yogis, the saints, or the sages, the right. uh, gross, subtle, causal, uh, head center, heart center, hara center, right. the different paths that take us to different destinations. And it gives us a framework so that we can appreciate but not make a fetish of all of the parts of the whole. This is right. the, the the genius of integral. The other motive that we have for practice is to make a contribution. And the way we see the world and the way our awakening, whatever to whatever degree we've awakened, you know, is operationalized in service and in uh, in our work uh, is shifted by standing in an integral context. We. Right would agree with the uh, the kind of the wisdom and action folks, the, the engaged Buddhists, that uh, there is a uh, social responsibility that comes with spiritual practice. Right. But there's a rather narrow uh, postmodern interpretation of that that tends to dominate most uh, contemporary people who have a, a spiritual basis for a sense of social responsibility. They will tend, therefore, to perceive a kind of narrow championing of the marginalized and the um, environment and so forth in, in ways that 
don't really join with the currents that would transcend and include both sides of the polarities that divide right. us and take us to some really new ground. Right. So an integral practitioner is able to be a socially active, committed servant of his or her world in every way that is valid that a uh, uh, that other practitioners might might be able to, but with a much more liberated view, a much freer and more inclusive and far less narrow and righteous way of being, uh, we actually are friends to all the participants in these gridlocks and able to to uh, be creatively uh, edged upon uh, new ways of being that really get us beyond the current gridlock. And right. I'm afraid that the most socially uh, active spiritual practitioners today can't do that. Well, that's a good point. And is one of the, um, I think, really crucial points, as, as you said, uh, about an integral approach is that it really frees the mind from those kinds of contraction by opening the mind to all the possibilities, to all the different perspectives that are actually there. And every time you see one of these new perspectives, you have let go of a whole realm of attachment. And it happens naturally. As soon as you see a third-person perspective, you find second-person perspectives offensive. You're embarrassed by them. You, you, you can't be in the presence of somebody mouthing ethnocentric judgments and biases if you are at a third-person world-centric perspective. And this doesn't come out of any effort. It comes naturally from the mind seeing larger territory and naturally identifying with that. And so we can achieve the results of wanting to do good service and wanting to do things for the environment and wanting to do things for the poor and people with HIV and so on. But without, as you say, becoming self-righteous and over exalting and identifying with the cause, but holding it uh, naturally and carefully and with real compassion, but not zealotry. And that's one of the things that just gets cut and undercut by you know, truly integral approaches to these topics. And, and, it's, and it's one of the measures of one's practice. I mean, the, the, there are two ways you can yeah. measure it in a way. You know, in the inner realms, like what's the, what's the awakening? What's the samadhi? Yeah. And in the outer realms, what's the service? What's the yeah. contribution? What's the character of how this makes a difference in the world yeah. more objectively and in relationally in the yeah. uh, lower quadrants? And this, in, in both of these ways, we can see how important it is that existing practitioners who who we can appreciate and value, even though on one level we're identifying some criticisms, these people are our brothers and sisters. They are the sure. people for whom we've created integral life practice. They are sincerely engaging the real matter as best they can. This is simply an offering to help them do that more truly, more effectively, more beautifully in a way right. that's got more goodness. Right. It's not a... Um, an alternative to what they're already doing. It's an uplift of what they are already doing. Yeah, well put. I thought what I would do to uh, end the discussion of spirit is just to read a quick one-minute module on the three faces of spirit. And this gives us also an example about how quickly these one-minute modules work. Um, what they are is quick summaries of the essence of the practices that you've been doing if you've been doing one of these practices. And so the three phases of spirit, the practice there is to go through a series where you first see the world as a third person, great nest of being. Then you see the world as a second person being with intelligence. And then you see it as, a, as your own subjectivity, your own pure I-ness. And so a one-minute module of all of that is as follows. Repeat the following sentences quietly to yourself, letting each perspective arise gently and naturally. I contemplate spirit as all that is arising, the great perfection of this and every moment. I behold and commune with spirit as a beloved infinite Tao, 
who bestows all blessings and complete forgiveness on me, and before whom I gladly offer utter gratitude and devotion. I rest in spirit as my own witness and primordial self, the big mind that is one with all. In this ever-present, easy, and natural contemplation, communion, and meditation, I go on about my day. If you wish, you can replace the word spirit with any word of your choice that evokes an ultimate being. It could be God, Jehovah, Allah, Christ, the Lord, or the One. Lastly, and briefly, we finish the book. Um, The last major chapter is a discussion on ethics. And there are several reasons that, that we did this, but among others is ethics is one of the first modules uh, reaching out beyond the individual modules and involving the interaction and relationship with others. Um, but there are a lot of reasons that we included this chapter on ethics, aren't there? Well, this is, uh, for, for one thing, I think we all felt that we just didn't want to have a discussion of practice that didn't put ethics front and center yeah because uh you know what is your spirituality if it doesn't express itself in the way you treat other people right um and we made sure that this uh treatment also uh, had a devotional dimension you know yeah. what is your spirituality if you do not love right so the conversation about ethics uh felt like it needed to be given as much space as as any of the so-called core modules but the conversation about ethics, I think, is also a uh, a rich uh, and simple and easily understood application of aqua theory to an import, you know, uh, one of the central uh, dimensions of uh, of human life, and it offers right. a lot of valuable uh, distinctions as well as a sense of the ongoing matter of ethical practice that no right. matter how good-hearted and basically loving we are in most of our behaviors, there's always uh, an edge where we're growing ethically. And it yes. helps us to uh, not only take a look at ethics in a way that identifies uh, some orienting generalizations that clarify the discussion tremendously, but it also helps to bring us face-to-face with the ongoing uh, teleological demand to go further and to be ethical in new ways. Right, right. And ethics tends to touch on so many items about reality that are deeply human. You know, our care for others, our concern for others, um, our motivation, our needs, um, the very desires that we have, our capacity to take the role of other and our desire to do unto others as we would have people do unto us. Um, And it's inextricably bound up with the spiritual and meditative disciplines. Virtually all of the great traditions, if they're asked to name three pillars that their path rests on, they're the same three. In Buddhism, for example, it's Shila, Jnana, and Prajna. Shila is ethics, morality, the very first floor. The second, dhyana, is meditation. And the third, prajna, is non-dual awareness. And so it's something that we have tended to forget and to neglect, in part because of the postmodern relativizing of all ethics, that there is no truth that is universally true. There is no ethical consideration that's universally true. That what's true for me is true for me. Fuck you. Um, I can't be challenged. My truth is my truth, and so on. And all of which is deeply, deeply confused. So ethics itself is really needs to be put back in the conversation, and not only as a way to do right by others, but for the positive things it does to ourselves. Uh, Roger Walsh has a phrase, feeling good by doing good. And that's a fine way to put it. Um, ethical yeah. action fits with the actual sort of grain of the universe. It's flowing in the same direction as evolution, which is eros. Eros is towards greater and greater and wider and wider union and wholeness. And that which drives it subjectively, that is blissful. 
finding a greater whole, Eros acted on is fun. It and feels good. Yeah, it's, it's fun, and it's also enlightened self-interest because when we act unethically, we reinforce unskillful states of body and mind that create suffering, and that right. the temporary conditional gain that we get through whatever unethical behavior it is right. uh, is always outweighed by the larger disadvantages, although we don't see it at the time. They come, right. you know, the wheel, the, the wheel turns, and it comes around. So the enlightened self-interest uh, that ethics reflects is really, really important to, to right. emphasize. There, there, there is a dimension of this that is about care, and it truly isn't only motivated by selfish concerns, but if, it, it kind of needs to be drawn out simply as the smart move for the self. And if that argument is, is, is clear in our minds, it simplifies the whole relationship to the whole ethical matter. So that, right. you know, yeah, in some moments you don't feel very caring, but, you know, be smart anyway. <laughs> um, well, the book is Integral Life Practice, and people should know what a absolutely central role in authorship you played in the book. And uh, it's something that we can all be proud of. I'm delighted in the way it turned out and really grateful for your role in it, for the great deal of responsibility that you took on yourself um, in doing this. And it um, can go with, we've mentioned, uh, Integral Life Practice Starter Kit, which can be found at myilp.com. And, of course, the book itself uh, is available on Amazon or from Shambhala or any other fine bookseller. This was great, Terry. This was just great. And I'm so glad we had a chance to kind of go through all the major points and, and give our reflection on it and, and then turn it loose. Um, it's been a delight, my, my dear friend. Yeah, I think you can. I've had a lot of fun getting into this with you. It feels like we could have... Uh... We went on a long time, and we could have gone on a lot longer because there are so many different dimensions of uh, of this great matter, which we're both uh, so privileged to be able to focus on in our, Indeed. In our own work. Thank you so much. Your uh, friendship and, uh, and partnership have uh, opened up a great deal for me and, and continue to, and I love you very much. Wonderful, my friend. Love to you, too. Bye now.